November and the usual Christmas frenzy is already apparent in the shops. We will soon be sending and receiving Christmas cards. Here is a scene that has now become a fairly stereotypical view of Christmas in the 21st century. But how biblically accurate is it? History, scripture and astronomy help us to gain a new and better understanding of the story of Christ's birth, including the date of his birth, the journey of the Magi, that famous star, Joseph and Mary's trip to Bethlehem, the fabled inn, the message of the angels, the nearby shepherds, the swaddling clothes and even the manger in which the Saviour was laid. We will examine all of these in some detail. First of all, let's look at the date of Christ's birth. The early church did not appear to have celebrated the birth of Christ at all. But interest started in the second century after his birth about exactly when this might have occurred. By the fourth century, those in the Western Roman Empire picked December the 25th and January the 6th was picked by those in the East. Eventually, December the 25th became the chosen date, but one may ask why? One popular theory was that it was also the midwinter Roman Saturnalia festival and that, together with Emperor Aurelian establishing the feast of the birth of the unconquered son on December the 25th, our forebears decided to use this date and no one's argued for change. It is interesting that despite great details about other events in the Bible, giving precise dates and times, that these details of Christ's birth are not recorded, the Bible remaining silent about the time of year and even the year. Perhaps we might conclude that we don't need to know, but hints are given that encourage us to look further. I would like us to consider that it may have been September 3 BCE. It has for some time been thought that Christ was born in 4 to 6 BCE, mainly based on a comment by Josephus, who in Antiquities of the Jews states that there was a lunar eclipse shortly before Herod died. This was thought to be the eclipse of March the 13th, 4 BCE, and Christ would have had to have been born before this date. However, this overlooks the lunar eclipse on the 9th of January, 1 BCE, which can be seen in the NASA records, which also shows it occurring as a total eclipse visible in Jerusalem. This means that it is possible that Herod died later than originally thought, and if so, Christ could have been born any time before 1 BCE. This is further backed up by other historical information, including the amount of time that Herod served after his appointment and after conquering Jerusalem. The Gospel of Luke gives us some clues by giving great detail as to when Zechariah was on duty in the temple. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. One day Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. This is sufficient information for the courses of the priests serving in the temple to be tracked back through two chronicles, Exodus and Ezra.
This gives us a time frame in which John the Baptist would have been born and by extension ties Christ's birth to six months after that of John. This reckoning is explained in detail by the late historian Dr Martin Elm, who concludes that John the Baptist was born around March the 10th, 3 BCE, and therefore Christ must have been born in September of that year. The next piece of evidence is the census that called Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Luke tells us in chapter 2, at that time the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Census taking was a regular practice in the Roman Empire and several are recorded, one by Josephus in AD 6, mentioned in Acts chapter 5, but clearly too late to be at the time of Christ's birth. What there does not appear to be is a census that fits in with Quirinius being governor of Syria. There is a record that an oath of obedience to Augustus was demanded of all people in Judea in 3 BCE, and this would have required Joseph and Mary to report to Jerusalem. This was the first time this type of oath of obedience was made and it was taken as a stage in tax assessment and fits in with the authorised version saying all the world should be taxed. A summary about the date of the census is dealt with from an archaeological standpoint on YouTube and the link is below. Unless and until further evidence comes to light, the debate about the census continues. Finally, Matthew tells us of the Magi, who came to Herod, saying, Where is the one who is born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. The Magi, traditionally three, but actually no number is given in the Bible, had seen activity in the stars and believed it heralded a new Jewish king. Strong says that the word Magi means an astrologer or magician and is translated as such in the NIV and other versions in Acts describing Elymas the magician or the sorcerer. So were the Magi reading the stars as astrologers and believing they could see the signs that a Jewish king had been born? Or were they Bible scholars seeing signs in the heavens and searching the scriptures for the answer? I think the latter because the gifts they brought were gold for a king, frankincense for divinity as the son of God and myrrh for his humanity representing his death and burial. Tradition tells us that the Magi followed the star from the east and it led them to Jesus. However, the Bible doesn't state that a star led them from the east, rather that they had seen a star or stars which they believed to be heralding the birth of a new Jewish king. They presumably expected a new king of the Jews to be born in the palace at Jerusalem, which is why they went there. If they had been guided by a star, they would have had no need for input from Herod. There was some amazing activity in the night skies between 7 BCE and 1 BCE, predominantly occurring in and around the constellation of Leo, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. For further details of, on this, please see the third part of the Stars Speak, published in last month's Press On Journal. 
The Bible refers to planets and stars simply as stars. Stars don't actually move. If it moves, it's a planet, sometimes referred to as a wandering star or a comet. So the Magi were not following a star. The Magi were watching some astronomical activity and would have spotted something unexpected, particularly with the planet Jupiter. Jupiter is known as the King Planet because it is the largest in the solar system, being 11 times bigger than Earth. Jupiter is also known as the Saviour Planet. It stops asteroids and meteors approaching the Earth by its gravitational pull. Jupiter pulls asteroids and meteors into itself and absorbs the impact and has been recorded many times as saving the Earth from otherwise certain destruction or at the very least severe harm. Although on some occasions this has allowed the smaller asteroids and meteors through, countless times Jupiter has used its gravitational pull to suck asteroids out of the Earth's path and into itself. Because of Jupiter's size, it can absorb asteroids that would otherwise demolish the Earth. Some planets do what is called retrograde from time to time. Jupiter normally does this about once a year. A retrograde makes it look as though the planet is slowing down and stopping and then going backwards. Visually, it's making a loop. Retrograding is an optical illusion, like when you park your car in the car park and as you stop, the car next to you reverses out and you find yourself stamping on the brakes because you feel as though you are moving. From the 13th of May 3 BCE to the 28th of August 2 BCE, there were nine major conjunctions of planets and stars, and of these, six were with Jupiter. Normally, planets go into retrograde away from other planets and stars, but around Christ's birth, Jupiter circled one star three times in an eight-month period. The star is Regulus, in Latin, the king the brightest star in the constellation of Leo. When Jupiter appeared to circle around Regulus, it made an amazingly bright light. Perhaps this caught the attention of the Magi, and so they told Herod they had seen his star, and not just a star, the king and saviour planet, circling the king star in the kingly constellation to mark the birth of the king of kings. It appears a star did not guide the Magi until they reached Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, the star appeared to guide them to where the child lay. Again, there is no clear evidence of what this star was. It is suggested that it might be a comet or a special star that God created for this purpose or some other miraculous event. This was a journey of only five miles, and if Jupiter were in retrograde with a star or another planet, it would appear to be brighter than normal and could appear to change direction, so seeming to move across the sky, leading them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. In the same way, it could also look as if it was standing still, if it were in a retrograde, hovering above where the Messiah was. Again, none of this is conclusive, but for me, persuasive. 
It is presumed that by the time the Magi understood the significance of the stars and the Bible prophecy and travelled to Jerusalem, that a period of perhaps up to 18 months had passed by. Hence, after asking when the star had first been noticed, Herod ordered all the babies under two to be slaughtered. One further piece of astronomical information that leads me to think that Christ's birth may have been in September 3 BCE links the stars to the Bible through an app I have on my iPad called Stellarium. It allows me to move through the constellations and show what the sky looked like above any place I set at any time in our history or into the future. Because Stellarium allows us to look at the night sky on any given night, we can go backward to when we think Christ may have been born and see how the night sky looked over Jerusalem. This is a screenshot of the position of the stars on the 11th of September 3 BCE, which is one of the suggested birth dates of our Lord. Pictures are shown with the images of the zodiac, and here you can see Virgo, and above Virgo's head, which is right and down, is the constellation of Leo. I want to read the first few verses of Revelation to you, while you look at the picture of the sky, you will remember John was exiled on the island of Patmos and he records this vision. Revelation 12 verses 1 to 5. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out because of her labour pains and the agony of giving birth. We can see the positions of the various planets, stars, sun and moon on the chart. John continues, then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his head. His tail swept away one third of the stars in the sky and he threw them to the earth. This could be the constellation of Draco the dragon. Each autumn there are meteor showers that happen during September and early October. When the earth passes through the meteor shower it looks as if Draco is flipping the stars out of heaven with his tail. A meteor shower is recorded between the 10th and 12th of September 3 BCE. Revelation goes on to say, He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God to his throne. As you will appreciate, the sun and moon are only visible in the sky at the same time for a very short time as the moon rises and before the sun sets. On the 3rd of September 3 BCE, this was between 6.18 and 7.39 PM, the stars and planets were in the exact alignment as recorded in Revelation 12. This is the same night sky without all the images and slightly enlarged. What you see is the moon off to the left, the sun and the other stars and planets in the constellation of Virgo. You can also see that Venus was very present in the mix that night. Venus, although it is a planet, is called the morning star. It is brighter than any of the other individual stars or planets in the constellation. 
In Revelation 22 we read, I, Jesus, am the bright and morning star. Apt that Venus should be in the constellation of Virgo on the night of his birth. Add into this Mercury, which is forming part of the larger cluster. Mercury is the planet associated with messengers. You may remember when Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Lystra that the people called Paul Mercury because he was the chief speaker, that is, he brought the message. Barnabas was called Jupiter. You will remember we said that Jupiter is called the saviour planet, absorbing meteors that would have hit and damaged Earth. So the people of Lystra called Paul and Barnabas messengers of the saviour when they called them Mercury and Jupiter. Also, you can see that Regulus, the king star, and Jupiter, the saviour planet, are merging in Leo, the lion of the tribe of Judah. All this activity may have led to the Magi setting off to Jerusalem and asking Herod, where is he that is born king of the Jews? September the 11th, 3 BCE, was also the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. The Bible tells us that on this date, the first day of the seventh month, known as Tishri, God appointed this as a special Sabbath with the blowing of trumpets. At this celebration, the shofar is blown using a special rhythm with a hundred notes. Imagine the shofar being blown around Bethlehem when Christ was born. The shofar was also born when a new king was crowned and will be blown again at the resurrection. We are told in Corinthians, when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. For me, the position of the stars so accurately recorded in Revelation leads me to believe that Christ was born on the 3rd of September 3 BCE between 6.18 and 7.39 in the evening. I know this is not something that anyone can prove, but I find it a fascinating suggestion. So let's leave the stars and go on to look at Bethlehem, its significance and the events recorded surrounding the birth of Christ. We know that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem some five miles from Jerusalem because Joseph had to return to his hometown to take part in the census. Both Joseph and Mary were from the tribe of Judah and Bethlehem was where their ancestor David was born and where he would have looked after the sheep, on the same hills where the shepherds heard of the birth of our Lord. We don't know if Mary rode to Bethlehem on a donkey, but we do know that the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem is approximately 90 miles. It's quite possible that Mary and Joseph walked the journey, or went by donkey and cart, and they may have been accompanied by friends along the route, also heading for Bethlehem. It would have probably taken them about four days, but we have no idea where they would have stopped on the way. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem is situated over an aquifer, an underground store of fresh water which still, to this day, supplies the whole area. In our Lord's time, Bethlehem supplied water to Jerusalem, as their supply had been polluted with the blood of the many sacrifices made there. This water was famous in Israel, and you may recall David dreaming longingly for some of that good water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem. 
So our Lord, who called himself the bread of life, was born in the house of bread. The Lord Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Fitting that he should be born in Bethlehem, the supplier of endless fresh water for the whole of the surrounding area. When they reached Bethlehem, tradition tells us that there was no room in the inn. However, the word for inn here is the Greek word kataluma. This word occurs three times in the Bible. Here in Luke 2, the translators have used the word for inn. The other two occasions are in Luke 22 and Mark 14, referring to the upper room used for the Last Supper, where the word is translated as guest chamber or guest room. The only other place where an inn is mentioned in the New Testament is the story of the Good Samaritan, where the word used is not kataluma, but pandokian. From this it seems that it may have been an upper room in a private house and not an inn, but in any event there was no room available for Joseph and Mary. Given that Joseph's relatives would also be arriving in Bethlehem, and some may even have been living there, one may wonder why they were not given hospitality with them. Perhaps Mary's pregnancy was causing some hostility with the family and they didn't want them in the house. This would give us another way of looking at John 1, talking of our Lord Jesus. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. It could also be that as by giving birth, Mary would have made herself and the family and their surroundings unclean that they had to find somewhere else for the birth to take place. Luke then tells us of the shepherds living in the fields nearby Bethlehem. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were afraid. The angel told them that the Saviour had been born, the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped snugly in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. A great company of angels then appeared, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. There's no mention of singing. In fact, in most places where angels are mentioned praising, it does not mention singing. Even in the most of Revelation, it is the risen righteous ones who sing. The angels just say their prayers. Some commentators say that angels never sing, that humans have been given an innate natural affinity for music and singing, especially with regard to worship. Clearly, in our human state, we are encouraged to sing as instructed in Ephesians, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. But back to the shepherds. So the sign was twofold, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. It was common for all new babies to be swaddled. This was done with strips of cloth and these swaddling bands were the layette of the time, prepared lovingly by expectant mothers and grandmothers. Sometimes they were embroidered with something exclusive to the family. It was tradition for, traditional for priest families to use their old priestly garments as swaddling for the babies in their family. Wouldn't it be amazing if Elizabeth had given her young cousin Mary some priestly robes to swaddle her firstborn, the saviour of the world to be our high priest, wrapped in priestly garments? We have no idea if this happened, it is just a thought. 
I also wonder when Jesus died and was wrapped in linen cloths in the tomb, whether Mary's mind went back to swaddling him at his birth. So if all the babies were swaddled, what was the point of telling the shepherds this? They would have expected nothing less. Perhaps it was to emphasise that Jesus was a loved son, both of Mary and also of our Heavenly Father. This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. This contrasts with Ezekiel 16, where Jerusalem was told that on the day you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut. You were never washed, rubbed with salt and wrapped in cloth. We know that when our Lord Jesus died, he was also despised, but at his birth, he was loved, worshipped and adored. What we do know is that being wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger meant something to the shepherds. The angel said it was a sign. To be a sign, it would have to be distinctive, understandable and unique. It would have to mean something to them. We need to understand that these shepherds were the priestly shepherds who worked on the hills of Bethlehem. Details are given about this in the Mishnah, which is one of the books forming the Talmud, where it expressly forbids the keeping of flocks throughout the land of Israel, except in the wilderness. And the only flocks otherwise kept would be those for the temple services. Josephus concern, confirms this and states that the only lambs accepted for the Passover sacrifices had to be bred within six miles of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Bethlehem and their surrounding fields were not in the wilderness where ordinary flocks of sheep were kept. Therefore, according to the Jewish regulations, the flocks under the care of the shepherds near Bethlehem were bred slowly, solely for, for sheep destined as sacrifices in the temple at Jerusalem, making Bethlehem Hills a first century factory sheep farm. These were the shepherds whose job was to look after the newborn lambs, picking out the perfect ones. Those lambs had to meet the strict legal religious regulations of the Jewish faith. They had to be no more than one year old and without spot or blemish. Therefore, they had to be born in controlled conditions and expected for birth defects before being raised in protected surroundings. Just before Passover each year, the lambs were taken to Jerusalem, the males for burnt offerings and the females for peace offerings. There was a tower on the field from which the shepherds could look over the fields and see any danger and also see when the ewes were ready to give birth. This was called the flock tower. Under the tower was a stable. The ewes were brought into the stable to give birth. The lambs were inspected immediately and if perfect would be swaddled in cloths to keep them without blemish. They laid the lambs in the manger, in the stable, to keep them quiet, awaiting inspection by the priest. So to the shepherds, being told the Messiah was swaddled and in a manger, they would know instantly that the Messiah would be in the stable of the flock tower. When the angels left, the shepherds said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. There is no record of a discussion as to how they would find a baby in a manger in a busy and bustling Bethlehem. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was in the manger. 
they saw the Messiah, our high priest, and the perfect sacrifice lying in the manger where they daily saw sacrificial lambs. The shepherds knew they were not going to see just any baby. That's why they worshipped him. They knew he was the promised Messiah, the perfect sacrificial lamb of God. So what do we know about the flock tower? It's believed it was at Migdal Eda, as Migdal Eda is translated from Hebrew as flock tower. We first come across this place when Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Genesis 35 tells us Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, over the tomb Jacob set up a pillar and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. Bethlehem became a very special place for Jacob as it would do for David too. In the book of Micah, in the eighth verse of chapter four, we are told, as for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter's iron, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jer Jerusalem. I find it absolutely amazing to think that God planned for his son to be born at the time of the census so that Joseph would take Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy of where the baby would be born. Joseph, this selfless man of faith, knew there would be somewhere for Mary to give birth and God provided the flock tower, so fulfilling the prophecy of Micah. It makes such perfect symmetry. Our Lord, the source of living water, born above the aquifer supplying water and life to the land. The bread of life, born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. The perfect lamb, the lamb of God, laid in the manger where the sacrificial lambs were laid. The Bible gives us the details of Christ's birth that we need to know and we're left to wonder about the rest. Despite all the trimmings that we in the 21st century have added, the birth of Christ is still the most wonderful event in the history of mankind. It is humbling that God, who could have made the birth of Christ the most show-stopping razzmatazz celebration on earth, chose instead simple, quiet, loving, gentle beginnings overseen by angels and shared with shepherds. We are reminded that God tells us, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. It remains only for me to wish you a very happy Christmas and a peaceful and happy new year and pray that this may be the year that our Lord, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, returns in power and great glory. Music